The sermon text today is Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 19, and 3, 5 through 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to each his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnatheris, the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. What do you think is the greatest threat to the Christian faith? Uh, would you say that it is um, physical persecution, or would you say that it would be cultural accommodation? Now think about that for a minute. What do you think is the greatest threat do you think that it's the, the swing of the culture going more towards an anti-faith position? Uh, do you think that it's more governmental interference? Or do you think it's this cultural upheaval towards kind of a, that anti-faith position? Or do you think it's cultural accommodation? You know, if, if history has anything to say on this, it would seem that cultural accommodation seems to be a greater threat. At least that's what we see in the first number of centuries in the church. When you look at the book of, of Judges, it's really a warning to us that the problem is not so much out there, but the problem is more in here. The, the people of Israel forgot God. They forgot his grace and his holiness and his his compassion and his judgment. This is what we find in our passage. It's really a picture of the spiritual decline of Israel. 
This is called the second introduction uh, because it begins again with the death of Joshua. But, but what, what it does is it traces out their spiritual apostasy, this downward spiral. It, it's kind of like, if you will, a road map. You know, I can give you directions to my house, and I can say, take this road, and then this road, and then this road, and then this road. But to give you a map makes more sense. That was a Google Maps. You, you can, it makes sense of all the details. And that's what this second introduction, it's going to give us kind of an overview of the entire book. It's going to make sense of the details. But it also shows us why people fall away. Why people move from faith to no faith. Why people stagnate into this position of kind of a formalized faith that's really no faith at all. It really is quite instructive for us. So we'll look at four aspects of what leads to spiritual apostasy. What leads to spiritual deadness? You can have a semblance of faith, but no real power. Uh, the first thing that you're going to see is that they forgot the very grace of God. His gracious person and works. Now I'm not saying these people went into some formal atheism. They just forgot his good, kind, and gracious character. Look with me at verses 6 to 10. You're going to see it in the transfer of generations. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance, take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him in Timnath, harassed in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So you see this clear comparison and contrast, right? You have Joshua. Uh, Joshua was faithful. Joshua is really the epitome of faithfulness in this book. The beginning of it and probably the end of it. And the reason I say this is because Joshua is the only one that made it into the promised land. He made it to his inheritance and he was buried where he was supposed to. He was the one that found rest in Israel. He was faithful. But notice the generation that arose. It says they didn't know the Lord and they didn't know the mighty acts of the Lord. Now, that's incredibly important for you to know, this transfer of generation. They didn't know the Lord. Now, of course, they knew about the Lord. They knew things about God. They had an understanding about the Lord. But they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord in a personal way with the warmth and affection of his gracious character. They didn't have, they may have had a clinical understanding, but they didn't have a personal affection for God. I mean, not just did they not know the Lord, they didn't know the mighty acts. Now, again, I think they would have known the acts of the Exodus from Egypt. I think they would have known the desert wanderings, but they didn't know about the acts of God in a way that engendered worship. They didn't know about the graciousness of God in delivering them, uh, due to no value in their own, just the mercy of God. They weren't warmed by the acts of God. They, they didn't hold them as precious and significant. You know, I've used a hundred times before with you about this kind of difference between a formal and a personal faith. You know, Jonathan Edwards speaks about the difference of knowing about, you know, the features of honey, right? You can know its color, its consistency, where it comes from. But to know facts about honey 
is a whole to it's altogether different than to take a spoonful in your mouth and the sweetness of it. You're experiencing the glory of honey when you eat it, not when you just know about it. And, and that's the difference here. So, for example, if I say to you, if you're a Christian, and I speak to you about the cross of Jesus Christ, him hanging there, nailed to the cross, bearing our sins, covered with our shame to reconcile us to God, you know that. Does that move you? D does that engender repentance over sin? Does it engender a deeper love for a God who would send a son? Does it engender a, a love for Jesus Christ for doing that for us? If it doesn't move you, be warned of a formalized kind of clinical faith that does not save. I, I mean, there's some warnings in this 6 to 10, just in this forgetting the grace of God. Uh, the, the warnings to us as Christians in general are simply this. Is our relationship more formal or personal? Is it more clinical? Is it more intimate? And in other words, the warning is you could have had some spiritual experience 20 years ago, and it was really profound and moved you. But if nothing's happened since then, there's no deepening affections. See, the nature of the Christian life is this ongoing transformation. It's often said semper reformata. It's, it's this idea of the church has to be reformed, but it keeps changing. It doesn't change in its doctrine, the, the faith once delivered. It, it keeps changing us. Daniel preached about it two weeks ago. You Beholding the glory of the Lord changes us from glory. to We're transformed. Have you experienced that? In other words, to say that I had this experience 20 years ago, or I came to faith when I was 12 years old, it, what's happened since then? There's this ongoing work. So you, you know this. I mean, if you take a marriage, and you see the couple get married, and it's a beautiful wedding day, and they have a lovely honeymoon, they come back. And then fast forward 20 years, and there's no deepening love for one another. There's no deepening intimacy between one another. There's no deepening transparency. There's no deepening willingness to self-sacrifice. There's no deepening oneness in marriage. What would you say about the marriage? You would say, well, it's a marriage maybe, but in name only. They haven't grown. The whole intention in marriage is to become one. The, the process of becoming one. That hasn't taken place. There's a warning for us. And this is why the church ought to be so significant to us. Because it's here that you're hearing about the glory of God and the great works that he's done. This is where we're encouraging one another. We're trying to spur on one another towards that love and good deeds all the more as you see the day approaching. This is why it's so significant. You're hearing about God and his great work in your life, trying to engender both affections and that transformation from glory to glory. You can't get there on your own. I will promise you that. All the one another's that we're to do, take another. Those people with whom you've covenanted. You can imagine trying to proclaim that my marriage is growing healthy while I never live with my wife. I mean, come on. You have to be together to grow together. And, and God has given us the church to do that. So I think there's a, there's a warning, there's a sober lesson for us Christians in general, but also uh, Christian parents in particular. You know, when you read this passage, you can't help but think, is there an implication here that part of the failure of the second generation was that the parents didn't teach them well? Well, perhaps it's there. Or 
It might also imply that the children who were taught didn't listen well. They were obstinate. They refused to take the instruction of their parents. What is it? It could be both. But, but let, me give, let me give a warning to the Christian parent here. You know, the, the faith passes well when your faith is wholehearted, comprehensive. It's not a Sunday thing for you. Uh, it's, It's a Monday through Saturday. In other words, you don't have a fractured kind of bifurcated life. Church on Sunday, God on Sunday, and the world the rest of the time, or me the rest of the time. It affects, in other words, your kids ought to be seeing your faith played out in the way that you're loving your wife. You're speaking with your husband throughout the week. The way you do business, the way you handle your money, the way you speak about other people, the way you repent, the way you seek forgiveness. All through the week, that's, what, that's a wholehearted faith, not a compartmentalized faith. And not just a wholehearted faith, but I would say the Christian parenting involves a genuine faith that you admit your struggles that you repent when you fail, when you seek forgiveness from one another, may even be your children, that there's a genuineness, that there's room for doubt, that you don't always have to have it all tied up together perfectly. You can speak about your faith in real terms. You know, Christian Smith is a sociologist in University of Notre Dame, uh, educated at Harvard and then at Wheaton, and he's written on uh, the practice of religion uh, within society for years and years. And here's what he wrote just in the latest article in First Things in, in May of this year. He says, the empirical evidence is clear. In almost every case, no other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. Not religious congregations, not youth groups, faith-based schools, not missions and service trips, not summer camps, not Sunday school, not youth ministers or anything else. Those influences can, can in reinforce the influence of parents, but almost never do they surpass or override it. What makes every other influence pale into virtual insignificance is the importance of the religious beliefs and practices of American parents in their ordinary lives, not only on holy days, but every day, throughout weeks and years. So what can committed religious parents do to increase the chances of raising children who as young adults believe and practice some version of their religion? Well, the first answer is to believe and practice their own religion genuinely and faithfully. Children are not fooled by performances. They see reality. And when that reality is authentic and life-giving, they just may be attracted to something similar. Now, that's a word to the parents, but let me give a word to the children, to those of you who are still living at home. You can't be saved by the faith of your parents. Your parents' faith is a guide to instruct and lead you. You must move in faith towards God. You must still ask the questions, why am I here? Who is God? What is my purpose in life? You still have to, you know, it's been said God has no grandchildren. And that simply means that you can't be a child of someone who is a child of God. That God only has children. That you as a youth, you are right now hearing these truths. You are responsible as well. Those, to process these and to talk about these. Is God real? And what did cause the creation of the world? Why am I here? They're for you to wrestle, to engage with your folks on these things. 
So there's a warning here, both to the parent and to the child. So we see the first thing they did was they forgot about the gracious character of God. But notice next with me that they forgot the holiness of God. We don't want to forget the holiness of God. Look with me at 11 to 13. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They, they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, let me try to explain. That's a phrase you're going to be seeing over and over and over again that they forgot the holiness of God. How do I know that? Well, it's because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're going to see that time and time again. Now, what's so evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, idolatry. They were worshiping these. So, so here's Israel. They've been saved by God's grace. They've been brought out of slavery. They're being brought to a land. They're to be holy as he is holy. They are to be a kingdom of priests to serve God. They are to declare the glory of God to the nations so that the nations might come to see the greatness of God. And what do they do when they get there? They begin to serve the gods of the people that are there. Can you believe it? They begin to serve Baal and Ashtoreth. Let me give you a little explanation on that. Baal was a male god, a male Canaanite god. He was the god of fertility. He brought rain. He rode the clouds. He caused the ground to be fertilized with, with water, to crops for grow. Ashtoreth was a female. She was a goddess. She was a goddess of fertility and love. Now, in Canaanite theology, it was when Baal was intimate with Ashtaroth that it would produce fertility for the ground. And so the encouragement was offering sacrifices so that they would consummate their relationship so that the rains would come and the crops would be produced. It's an agrarian society. No rain, they all die. So the gods need to do what you need them to do. But, but not only did they offer sacrifices to encourage Baal to move towards Ashtaroth, but they would also engage in temple prostitution. In other words, a man would go into the temple to have sexual intercourse with a temple prostitute so as in a way to entice Baal to do what they're doing. They were seeking to manipulate the gods by their behavior for their own life. You have the God of Yahweh. You have Yahweh, the God of Israel, holy, drawing a people to be holy to himself, and that's the direction they go. This is why God's angry. You see that in 14 and 15. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to their plunders. Who plundered them? And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Of course they were in distress. God himself is opposing them, and he told them. And don't miss the irony. He is using the nations to plunder them, the very nations of the gods whom they're worshiping. And he's angry, and he brings about discipline to them. Now don't for a minute think that God's anger was void of his love. True love results in anger, in self-destructive behavior. Actually, anger is an outworking of love. Again, you know this in real life. If there is a man who's been married to a woman, they've been married for 25 years, and he finds absolute proof that she's been cheating on him for a year, 
imagine what the reaction would be? Would he just say, hmm, that was a tough break. Well, it was nice while we had it. I guess the chips fall where they fall. And then he just moves on. What would you expect him to do? I mean, the nature of marriage is marked by transparency, intimacy, exclusivity. And that's been violated. And the husband's to have no righteous or jealous anger that the one with whom he's been joined has now made a union with another? Do you realize that in Scripture, God likens himself as a husband to us? In fact, if you read in the book of Hosea, he calls himself a husband. And he says, when Israel plays the whore, he's angry. It's a jealous anger because he loves us. In fact, in the book of Hosea, adultery, or I should say, I Idolatry is actually called adultery. That's that violation of the covenant. And so God brings about punishment upon his people to wake them up to this reality. They forgot the holiness of God. They, they exchanged the holiness of God for the moral decadence of these Canaanite gods. Now, what's the appeal of idolatry? Have you ever thought about that? Why would they do it? Let me give you one reason, because they get to control the gods. Listen, all pagan theology is transactional. I give this to the gods, they give this to me. I do this for the gods, they do this for me. It's very transactional. We get the controls, we get to drive the bus. We will do what the gods require, but we will get from the gods what we have offered to them. Now, folks, the warning for the Christian here is not a temple prostitution, but it's beginning to move the Christian faith into a similar type of transaction. Th this idea of if I pray, and if I go to church, and if I give money, my marriage will get better, or my health will get better, or, or my relationships will deepen, or I'll get the man that I want, or I'll get the woman that I want. And it's this transaction. And, and you know when, you're, when your belief in God is made more transactional, when you do these things... And you don't get what you want, and then you get angry, or you get resentful. Hold it, God, I, I've been praying, I've been reading, I've been doing all these things, and I've just gotten hardship and difficulty and trial. What gives, God? Right away you know you've moved into a transactional religion. That is totally contrary. That's exchanging a gospel of grace. This shows you the radical nature of a gospel of grace where he has given to us a son. There is nothing we've done. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we'll ever be able to do to somehow give him an ounce back. It's just pure grace. The Christian faith is the only faith of all the world religions that's not transactional. It's the only one. What was the appeal? Because they get the control. But but the warning is that God is not indifferent to our sin. He's not, he doesn't overlook it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't gloss it over. God is not indifferent to the sin of his people. He brings about trials and hardships to wake them up. We call them discipline. Now, I'm not saying that every struggle and trial you have is related specifically to an idolatrous sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I would say to you is this that when you are experiencing trials and difficulties, it is a good time to just take a step back and say, God, where am I with you? How's my relationship? 
start to look at your life, take your soul to task, say, what are those things in me that perhaps are leading me away from you? It's a good time just to, stay, to take stock of our life. It's a good time for you to say, where is my heart? What, it, what am I wandering after? You know, the, the quickest way to find out places of idolatry is, is ask yourself the question, what, would, what am I giving myself to in terms of my time and my effort? What am I, you could even say, you could even make it a little more, a, a little bit harder in terms of what am I giving myself to? What am I giving my body to? What am I giving my mind to? What am I giving my money to? What am I giving my thought life to? Those might identify some of those things are being distracted right now. The steps to apostasy is you forget the grace of God and then you forget the holiness of God. It's to lead us to repentance. But thirdly, it's forgetting the compassion of God. Now, the, the, the way this text, this text is like a roller coaster. You know, God's anger is cultivated at their idolatry, but then his compassion is cultivated to our suffering. Look with me at 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. This, to me, is probably the hardest thing for you to understand because it just does not work in concert with our quid pro quo understanding of life, our transactional this meritocracy that we live in. God is moved to pity by our groaning. Don't think for a minute the groaning is repentance. God is moved with compassion, not because we finally owned up to everything and we're coming back to him. Hey, we're going to renew our efforts. We're going to do it right now, God. And God says, okay, I'll be pity. I, I will be compassionate. That's not it. There is no repentance in their groaning. It's suffering. It's misery. There is no doubt. They are being oppressed. They are suffering. But they are not groaning in a repentant way. But God is still moved by their groaning. Is this not incredible? He's not giving them a reward of raising up a judge because they finally woke up to it. He is already compassionate toward them. This blows our paradigm of God. And what he does is he, he brings up a judge. He raises up a judge. And we're going to see 12 judges over the next number of weeks. He raises them up to their sin, and they deliver. These human saviors, these human deliverers, they come and they lead them out of oppression, and they lead them to a place of peace and worship. But I don't want you to miss, it's God who does it. Look at 18. It says the Lord raised up the judges. The Lord was with the judge. The Lord saved him from the hand. It's God. He may be using a human instrument, but it's God himself who saves. God does that. He's moved with compassion. Does this shock you? Does this, does this characteristic of God not shock you? I mean, are you not amazed that he has moved towards us with compassion at our groaning? You know, I think about Psalm 56. He, store, he stores the tears of our tossings or our troubles in a bottle. He's so acutely aware of what you're suffering even right now. He is moved with compassion 
towards our groaning. He's he's sensitive. He's not stoic, and he's not just up there hard as stone, but he's moved. And notice that as we go through the book, judge after judge, they return like a dog to the vomit, like a pig to the slop, and he's still moved with compassion. How, How many of you have at one point not approached God for grace because of the nature of your sins? How many of you have said, no, I've, I've just sinned too much? No, I, I've sinned, I, I've, I've already asked for forgiveness a hundred thousand times, I can't do it again. I can't do it again. Or, or how many of you have not approached God for grace because you think you've just sinned too greatly? It's not just the frequency, but the quality of your sins. Or, or the deluded repentance that you've offered. Do you see what, what he's saying here? He's saying, come to me. He is compassionate to our groaning. Even when we have muddled understandings of our own sinfulness, he is compassionate to us. I, I wonder how many of you, if you were to move to God even today, seeking to repent and seeking to come to him, even though you may be just littered full of sin, that you would go to him for mercy. I wonder how many of you of your lives would change. That you would find him to be as gracious as he is declaring himself to be. I would encourage you to do that. You know, one Old Testament scholar said, the irrefutable fact of this passage is that this God is not inventable. It's uninventable. There are no religions. You Man would not come up with this kind of God on his own. He would never invent this kind of God. You know, it's the very kindness of God that Paul says in Romans 2 that draws us to repentance. It's knowing his kindness that bids us it will be safe to go to him. It's not like going to the, the Wizard of Oz where you're terrified over the smoke and the sounds. No, his kindness is drawing you to him. Don't neglect the mercy of God. Even for those here who are not a Christian, don't neglect appealing to him for mercy and salvation. Apostasy will be a home for those who forget his grace, who forget his holiness, and who forget his compassion. And last, who forget that his discipline is merciful. Uh, Look with me now at verse 20. From verse 20 all the way through chapter 3, 6, it's as if God is reflecting on the nation. Remember now, this is an overview. It's a second overview. So God's kind of giving us his reflection on the nation. In 20 to 23, he says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, I commanded their fathers and Excuse me, uh, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations. What God is doing here, you might be asking, why didn't he just wipe them all out? Why didn't he just destroy them all? I mean, they keep going back time after time after time. They kept returning 
to their idolatrous. Why didn't he just destroy them? Well, because he's compassionate. What he does is he leaves these nations in. These nations are going to be like a goad. They're going to be like a thorn in the flesh. They're going to harass Israel. They're going to threaten Israel. We're going to watch them. All these various nations are going to be just oppressing Israel. He left the nations in there. He did not abandon them. Do not think of it that way. He did it to test them. Now, the testing of Israel was not for God to find out what was really under the hood. He already knew. The same word is used in Genesis 22 when he tested Abraham by calling him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. He, wasn't he wanted Abraham to see what was in Abraham. He wanted Israel to see what was in Israel. The tests are for us to see what's under our own hood. Abraham succeeded in his test. They did not. Notice what he says in those last two verses of this overview in chapter, five, in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and their daughters took to themselves uh, took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. They were swapping, is what they were doing. They were swapping. They were mixing. And the last line, they served their gods. I mean, what's the takeaway? I mean, the takeaway is just. What in the world are we going to do? How can we stop the cycle? The cycle we're going to see over and over is the people fall into idolatry. God brings oppression to them. They groan. God acts with compassion and raises up a judge and saves them. The judge dies. The leader dies. And then boom, they go back into idolatry again. Over and over. What's going to stop the cycle? What's going to change? Do you think we just... Maybe we need a different culture. Maybe we, need to get, maybe we need to get someone different in office. We need to get a different culture. Do you realize that after each judge, the culture changes? The problem is not outside. The problem is inside. What we need is we need to be made different. We need to be born from above. We need a different type of deliverer. All the human deliverers and the human saviors that we're going to see, they were only partial, they were only temporal. They could change the circumstances, but they couldn't change us. One has to come to save. That's what Judges is really preparing us for, so that the people would long for a king, but a true king, a real king, an eternal king. You know, today we're going to be celebrating communion, and I want to go right to getting you to consider the, the table. And the reason I, I do that is because the steps to apostasy are, are simply these. The steps are that there's a loss, there's a forgetfulness of the grace of God. You forget the grace of God, you move back into a formalism of faith. The steps of apostasy is that there is a, a loss of the holiness of God. And we begin accommodating the culture. We begin to live like those around us. We begin to be, you know, the book of Judges has been called the canonization of Israel. We begin to live like the world as opposed to being distinct from it. The, the step to apostasy is the loss of, of or forgetting the compassion of God. And we move back to some meritocracy that we have to do these things to somehow get God's favor. The steps to apostasy is, is the loss of forgetting about the discipline, the, the merciful discipline of God. 
And that's why I want to talk to you about the table. Every month you see the elder hold up the bread and said, his body's broken for you. And, and the cup, his blood, it's been shed for you. Every month you see in the table his great grace. I mean, there is no earning of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, his body broken for you to save us. Every month you're reminded, don't forget the grace of God that has given to us a son to save. But you're not just reminded of the grace of God, you're reminded of the holiness of God. When you think about what his body went through bearing our sins and the separation that he experienced from the Father, you see the nature of our sin. That God doesn't overlook it. He deals with sin. But your sin, for the Christian here, your sin was dealt with by being transferred to the Son to put on the Son and His body was broken for you. You're reminded of the compassion of God when you look at the cross. You're reminded of His mercy. Think about all of us. We don't deserve to be called children of God. None of us do. Many of you are educated and wise and have done well in life. And yet that has no bearing on his drawing you to himself. He's compassionate. We're all sinners. He brings the leper. He brings the prostitute. He brings the tax collector. He brings them all to himself. And then you, then you think about when you see the body and the cup, you're going to be reminded that his discipline is gracious. His judgment is right. The son bore our judgment. We receive mercy. You know, it says in Psalm 85, you know, in God, you see perfect righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's what you find. The judgment and mercy of God kiss each other as Christ lays down his life. So when you see the bread lifted and the cup lifted, you, you see all that you need to know that choosing the way of the world, accommodating to culture, makes absolutely no sense. When a God who is so beautiful, so faithful, and so kind has done so much to save. Let's take a moment now and just consider Christ and his work. He's the perfect judge. He is the human savior that will deliver forever. That will not just transform culture, but will change us. So let's take a moment and consider these things. Let it lead you to appeal to God. Maybe you have sinned greatly. Then move to God even now, being reminded of his great compassion. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.